this has happened every day of our life. There's always a big. We start, wake up from sleep, a sense of beginning, middle, and end. These reference points are points of contemplation, reflection in Buddhist uh, meditation. Like in the breath, we contemplate the beginning, we note the middle of the inhalation and the end, exhalation, the same pattern, but the inhalation conditions the exhalation. So the beginning conditions the end of anything. Birth, the result of birth, then is death. The result of a beginning is that it ends. May this have now the. This is uh, the five days left of this retreat. It's going toward the end, ending of the retreat. That which begins, that which began on the twenty-first. So you reflect on the, this, that, that perception of something coming to an end. These do affect our conscious experience, don't they? And it's not, even though it's obvious and kind of matter of fact, uh, and because of that we, we might not see its significance, and yet those are the very perceptions and experiences that, that are our life, that surround our experience and affect our minds, bodies. What, what is it, your mind, when you, what happens when you start thinking this, well, only five days left? What is the, what comes up in your in your mind, what kind of thoughts, reactions? Just, just to notice what that perception brings up, what that stimulates as far as thought and feeling go. Look forward to the next thing. What have you got planned for after the retreat? And you can you can uh, immediately start making your making your plans for what you're going to do. Kind of, we can always look forward to the next thing, the next experience. Or maybe what we have to go back to is we, we don't like or we, we're not very, we don't, we feel very insecure about it, unsure. But just to note, note these feelings as feelings and perceptions helps us to to see them as they are, as seeing the Dhamma, 
knowing the way it is, rather than thinking you should have solved all your problems and on this retreat and be able to face life afresh, you completely go go home and be able to, you know, start life anew or drift back in the old ways or whatever your hopes or fears might be, what you can do is observe that that is a condition of the mind now and so that 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 is always putting it in its proper perspective, that's always truthful and honest. It's not, it's not complicated, where should I, shouldn't I, what should I do, should I do this, should I stay, go, whatever it is. Uh, there's so many reasons, so many options, the mind can just get so confused because there's so many good reasons. We can think of so many good reasons to do or not do anything at all. So the holy life is more of a, it's an act of faith, of, of patient waiting, listening, resting, um, witnessing, and, and trusting, where the desire mind is always, you know, jumping around, trying to, what should I do next, and how should I do that, or should I or shouldn't I, or tell me what to do, or don't tell me what to do. So desire always blinds us. We're always, it's always like a making life more than what it is. Things aren't aren't what they are anymore. They're they're something else. They're distorted. They're complicated, convoluted. When making plans, it's not to. I'm not saying you shouldn't make plans, but to to know that that's exactly what you're doing, that that is possibilities only. It's not, it's not, if, when you put it into a sense of, of kind of duty and obligation and, and self-concern, and the self is very much bound up into plans, then it it has a, it's a very burdensome, uncertain kind of uh, form of suffering. So, ability to plan things out and that is, can be used, it's not to, to be despised at all, but to, to be put in its proper place so that it doesn't, we're not always looking forward to the next thing. We, we can actually trust with being with the flow of life and planning is is a part of that but it's which they're taking the self out of it 
the self-concern, the, the fear of making a mistake, of doing the wrong thing, or getting confused because there are so many different possibilities or options, alternatives available. So, as you develop the reflections on Dhamma, the more trust in just being and letting things kind of reveal themselves rather than kind of running around trying to to make decisions and force issues. The stress of modern life is very much with that, isn't it? It's people aren't really relaxed at ease with, with themselves in the moment. It's, it's always a, an endless uh, procession of events, looking forward to having to plan, having to worry about duties, obligations, uh, examinations, tests, and, and uh, all the, the kind of things that loom in the future that make us worry and concerned always about something that hasn't happened yet, po possibilities of success and failure in the future and the world. So we, we're never with life as it is. We feel this uh, stress all the time because it, it, uh, this, this running into the future, the futures, that which hasn't happened, that which is unsure and uncertain, becomes our concern. That we can, oh, I can't take it, I've had enough, and we, then we want to just annihilate ourselves. Sometimes one just wants to go to sleep and not have to think at all. Take a sleeping pill. Something that just knocks your, your mind out for hours. Sometimes it would be very desirable. Getting drunk or taking uh, various drugs, all that kind of thing is, is one, one way of doing it, isn't it? You can, drinking is, uh, alcohol is a really a, a kind of necessity in a stressful world where people uh, don't know how to, don't know what's wrong with themselves and don't know the nature of their own mind. So the only way some people know how to to get any kind of release from the tensions of their conditioned mind is to get a little drunk. Alcohol does kind of loosen it up a bit. <laughs> and then marijuana and all these kind of things do kind of get you out of these kind of incredible stifling tensions that we create in our mind. So that the society depends a lot on on those on those substances, chemical substances, to to kind of release the tensions that we create, the fear, the kind of nameless dread and anxiety about the future, and the feeling of inadequacy and the, and unable to cope, and 
and just let me out of this, I can't stand it anymore kind of feelings. I advise you to, to always, when, you, when, the, when your mind's going, I can't stand it anymore, I've had enough, really try to not believe that. That is a, that always is something that, that's going, if once you, you really believe that kind of feeling, it, it has tremendous power to, to do that wherever you are. You very soon you can hardly take anything. We have, I've seen people who, who I know who believe that all the time and then they end up not being able to do anything. Pretty soon they, they can't even come to the morning chanting. And they can't, pretty soon they can't do anything. They have to, everything is so stressful and they can't take it and they can't stand it that even the most pleasant things they, they can't do anymore because they're, they're so, they're, they believe totally the mind that says, I can't stand it, I can't take it. And then they, they don't uh, see that, they don't witness that as uh, some, something that uh, they're creating. As we're like Venerable uh, Amaro last night, his realization of a billion more lifetimes or whatever. Uh, this is kind of uh, kind of vow is very sometimes very relieving to the mind. Because this, the immediacy of this panic, I can't stand it, I can't, I've had enough, I'm fed up, is, uh, is such a powerful and convincing emotion, so easy to believe, that, uh, that, they, that the, the, this kind of extreme exaggeration of, you know, make it as extreme as you want, a <laughs> hundred million more lifetimes or a hundred billion more lifetimes to, to just be, do one good act. You know, the, the sense of not, not trying to become an arahant on a ten-day meditation retreat or because you don't, uh, don't get the, you aren't perfectly enlightened at the end of this retreat that you somehow feel that you, you, you're not a good meditator or that meditation isn't working. Take a hundred million more lifetimes, a uh, hundred million more retreats. I'm <laughs> just learning to be more aware of one inhalation. <laughs> That's where I, I like to 
I usually in in England we have a retreat center, and the retreat center run on it runs on donations. So there's there's no sense of of people paying a fee to buy a retreat because this uh, this is uh, and people think they they should get something. You know, you're buying something, and uh, therefore you you should get something from it. They get my money's worth kind of feeling. It's easily a uh, state of mind that comes. If you didn't get, if you, if you didn't have such a good retreat, then you say, I didn't get my money's worth. Is the, oftentimes the way the mind tends to perceive it. So that they, like you're buying something and then you, you, you're supposed to get something in return. Uh, and that whole attitude is 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 very conditioned into a kind of materialist minds. Our minds think like that. So therefore, we use the perceptions like not a matter of of getting, but of, of just uh, having an opportunity to listen. And even if you have only one. Uh, Half of a second of of uh, peacefulness during a two-week retreat, or you, not even that, <laughs> because there's a hundred million more retreats to do. So you <laughs> so you don't have to get it all in, all done on one. You know you can. You can you can be very very patient. I found this helpful in my first year as a summoner. I was being a very kind of ambitious person by nature, and uh, and impatient, uh, wanting quick results, and and. Uh, not wanting to have to wait for anything very long, and wanting to get results quickly. And then if not getting results quickly, I tend to get very self-critical and uh, depressed by not getting the results that I was expecting. So in the first year, I, I went at it, you know, I just threw myself into meditation. And uh, was, you know, the more you sit and the harder you practice, the better the result. So I was, I was just pushing myself uh, with this idea, basic idea that that I'm going to really get something out of out of doing all this. And uh, what I got, I didn't was rather disappointing because I just began to feel, you know, just uh, negative and. Uh, Oppressed by it all, and it's just trying to 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 uh, kind of leap into into enlightenment as an act of will. The whole thing was based on on all my old conditioning, my selfishness, ego, and the impatience and ambitious tendencies. So then I started just using, I started thinking, wanting to, to become an arahant in a short time, uh, 
uh, through just an act of will is obviously not going to work. So, so then I thought, because of this pride and conceit, I thought I'd just make very humble goals for myself rather than, than the kind of magnificent ones. So I, I used to, I was a habitual smoker and, uh, and could never really give it up. He tried many times to stop smoking, but uh, just never could do it. Stop, you know, for about three days was about the longest <laughs> I could manage. And then, so I decided if, if I just learned how to stop smoking, And if I just learn how to be, keep, uh, be moral, how to live, uh, be a more, more kind of moral being, and, and just uh, try to be more, uh, and very humble kind of goals I set for myself. Just if I can learn to be a little bit better, a better person than, than I am, then I'm not wasted my life. A little more kind, a little more patient. And using this, is trying to, to put kind of possibilities in front of me that I could actually achieve. Because if I made them too, too great, too high, then I'm always failing at it. And you just feel uh, depressed by your failures. So when I, you know, I started figuring out how to stop smoking through meditation, so I, uh, I thought, well, I've tried the aversion therapy. I, I, I've used all, you know, it gives you cancer type of perceptions. Smoking gives you cancer, hazardous to your health. It's, uh, it's, it makes your teeth yellow, gives you bad breath, and it uh, is expensive habit. It's a waste of money. And I could kind of, you know, I could agree with all that, but uh, still, that didn't seem to do the trick. Knowing all that, I still wanted to smoke. <laughs> and then, uh, then I began to realize that the mind, when it even obsesses itself with something, even on the negative side, you're still thinking about it all the time. So even uh, thinking about how bad it is, kept the perception of smoking in, in, as a conscious, kind of ongoing conscious experience. So that you could, you know, you became quite obsessed with, with cigarettes, either wanting them or trying to convince yourself that they're a very bad thing to have. And, and both, but both were, the, the mind was still always thinking about it. That perception of cigarettes became became an obsession, even as a, even as a, trying to, to use negative perceptions. Because in the long run, the desire, the body was so used to smoking and the, fee and the kind of mental kind of release and comfort that comes when you're uh, addicted to smoking cigarettes, that uh, all the kind of negative ideas about it didn't seem to to uh, hold for very long, keep you from doing it.
So then I decided just to stop thinking about it. So I, I began to notice whenever, whenever, whenever there was a thought or any kind of in, inclination to start, when that, when that kind of feeling came in, to, I became aware of that particular feeling of wanting where, where that cigarette feeling would start kind of making its way into my consciousness. I just refuse it. Say, you know, wouldn't wouldn't allow it in. I didn't. I, I'm thinking about it positively or negatively. I found no problem. I found uh, I could stop smoking without any without any great difficulty. I was surprised because uh, it just kind of dropped away. It wasn't as I thought it was going to be really hard and arduous and I just had to sit there kind of holding myself from you know because that's what I did with this with this just willpower type of thing and uh, you know you just I'm not going to do it I'm not going to do it then next thing you know you find your hand going over there while you're saying I'm not going to do it and you've got a fag in your hands you know (laughs) and suddenly it's lit I'm not going to smoke, and you, and you, <laughs> oh, I'm hopeless. I can't do it. I just can't. I'm going to. I'm going to stop trying. I'll just. I'll just smoke and get cancer and die young. <laughs> so, but learning to to cut it off at the root, the the, the kind of impulse actually wasn't painful. Was, uh, and it wasn't all that difficult, it was just a matter of, of knowing, of, of really uh, making a de- strong determination and to work with that point in your mind. Uh, not to fight a battle against smoking as an act of will, but to, to cut off the, the desire at the root, not to let it kind of take over your mind. So then I began to think, if I just become a little better person, less selfish, and then also like the 10, 10 million more, 100 million more lifetimes, this, uh, the, the, putting a, the goal of being just a little, not to be perfect, and I'm going to become perfect in 10 million more lifetimes, but just a little better, this kind of, is very humbling and, and in some way very peaceful way to, to reflect, I found. Rather than being depressing, it, it kind of says, you know, you're, you're, this, this, this idea that I've got to get something, I've got to pass, I've got to get top grades on the exam, I've got to prove myself uh, is because of uh, our competitive nature, very competitive society, it's always this kind of feeling that, you know, my worth is, is, is very much dependent on my achievements. And that can even be, you know, highly influential in the, 
in the holy life where you're trying to get away from that, where that kind of thinking just doesn't work. It's a, that kind of worldly ambition is a disaster for the holy life. We've seen, I've seen monks who, you know, were very successful in the world, you know, real, you know, real, could, could really have had all the abilities to make it in the worldly life, make lots of money and get, you know, good education and, and get all the best that the world has to offer. And yet in the holy life, when they tried to apply all those worldly talents, uh, you know, end up as kind of basket cases. They just <laughs> fall apart because they, they, uh, the, the worldly values just don't work in the, the, a, a personal ambition. There's certain virtues that do, the good virtues of life, but say ego, egomania and ambition and uh, out, of, out of having to prove yourself. And, and even the idea that, that working hard and just using your willpower, willing things to happen, uh, doesn't work in the, in the holy life. So that you're, you're the, the, that's why it is humbling, the holy life. It doesn't, you can't make it work by just being egotistical and conceited and clever. In fact, that, that, that destroys any possibility. Where the holy life is one of patience and and uh, humility. In the, in the Sangha, you get monks and nuns and that they, who, you know, are kind of worldly characters come up and say, as we, oftentimes as we get into, say, 10 years and where you think the idea of I've been a monk ten years, and then you, and uh, and then you want to be a teacher, be called Ajahn, and uh, and then uh, you can. And being a teacher is a really nice thing. Like, see here, you can. I've got you all kind of, you know. You sit there, to put you under the eight precepts the first night, tell you to shut up. <laughs> put you on noble silence, I can sit here and I've got everything under control. So, and then, then uh, when we, the, the retreat ends, then we all kind of go our separate ways and, and you say, you say, oh, Ajahn Sumedho was so nice and all that kind of thing. And, and uh, you can, you know, you can, sitting on a platform and all that, you can, you can put on a good show for people. But the real test of a practice is in daily life, living. Uh, and so a lot of people who are very good teachers oftentimes aren't so nice when you're living with them. <laughs> so, 
because then the the kind of defects in the you know you can't you can't put on a performance all the time you have to it's like marriage you you know the the uh, the other side is also seen so sometimes you must wonder you hear you go to retreats and get inspired by kind of fantastic teachers and then you hear stories about how impossible they are to, their, their spouses find them to be or they get divorced or they they uh, they can't live with other people and it's because being a teacher is one thing and, it's, and all this but actually living life living dhamma is is isn't isn't always uh, uh, on this level, isn't it? It's, it's learning to to be very humble and to really put the community first, like in in a monastic community, or encouraging everybody to put the community before themselves, whatever position they're in, whether it's the abbot or the newest. Uh, green member of the community, uh, whether they're the, you know, a, an important teacher or just a kind of a novice that, whose duty is to uh, clean the spittoons, or whatever your, you know, how lowly or how high the, your kind of functions might be, the aim is, is to do it for the welfare of the Sangha rather than then try to, if you're a spittoon washer and you think, oh, I'm, I should be doing something better than this. I have a PhD from, from Oxford. What a, I shouldn't have to wash these old spittoons. That's for somebody who's stupid. I should, I should be able to become a teacher and, and really use my talents. And of course, that's a good reflection for conceit, isn't it? So that the idea of, hum- of humility is, is uh, an essential for the holy life. And so whatever position we're in, it's not important, the, the status, or, you know, whether you're Ajahn or you're just an anagarika or something on that, you know, these kind of, uh, kind of uh, positions in the, in the structure or the hierarchy are not really, the imp- they're not the, really the issues. We can make issues about them, but then that's conceit. That's wanting to, you know, wanting to have an important position. Or sometimes it's the opposite. People that are kind of senior feel very incapable of teaching so that they, they're very frightened of taking on responsibility. Uh, different kinds of characters. But our intention then is to, to put our, what we're doing, do it, doing what we're doing for the welfare of all sentient beings or for the Sangha rather than to, and that gives us a chance to see our own feelings of, uh, you know, why do I have to wash the spittoons? Uh, 
I, I should be doing something that's, that I think is a little more advanced. Or I should be a teacher. Um, and that in, you know, wanting to become a teacher is also a conceit. So that the aim, say, in the, in the monastic life is to, is to be content with, say, as a, as a samana, as a monk or a nun, to, to, uh, a, to reflect on the four requisites, the shelter for the night, the food, alms food, the robes and the medicine, practice the Dhamma, just to develop gratitude for being able to practice the Dhamma and live the holy life rather than to ambitiously seek a position as a religious uh, teacher or a leader. So in Sangha life, that's where Sangha is a good reflection for that because it, it uh, the idea of refuge in Sangha helps us to see this sense of asserting our individuality and, and our egos kind of uh, manifesting because the Sangha is, is a kind of, uh, it, it's a generic thing. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not individual. We're taking, you're not taking refuge in a guru or in, in a person, in a teacher or a personality but in Sangha, where that is, is, is a, a community, the Supatipano, Ujupatipano, Yaya Patipano, Samiji Patipano, the, those who practice the Dhamma the right way, live in the right way. Well, that's our refuge in, in, with, within that community. And then we can begin to see our own particular egos as reflected in that, uh, liking, not liking, or feeling intimidated, or, you know, you, with men oftentimes you get a kind of uh, feelings of, you know, some of them have, you know, most of them don't have any problem respecting me because I'm considerably older, but but they, you find monks all around the same age and the same time in the order sometimes, you know, getting competitive and, uh, and uh, feeling uh, kind of negative about each other, you know, thinking uh, just because he was ordained ten minutes before I was doesn't mean I have to bow to him. <laughs> or these kind of of inferior thoughts can take over the mind. <laughs> or you think, you know, some, I mean, I one time lived for two years with a monk. Ajahn Chah put me with a monk who I really couldn't stand. A Thai monk. He was a coarse, really coarse person. Had a big scar over his eye, and I told I was told that when he was a layman, his wife uh, sent an axe into his head, and there's this huge <laughs> scar, ugly scar over his head. And living with him, I could understand why she did it.
I mean, he was, he, he was, uh, I mean, uncouth and, uh, and someone that, uh, he, he was the head of a branch monastery. And what I found was that, uh, you know, my first uh, reaction was aversion and, and I'd have things like, I'd have feelings like, uh, I don't want to be considered his disciple, you know, and, and Ajahn Chah would come up and say, Oh, Hasmato, now you're a disciple of, of Ajahn Salm. And I'd, God. <laughs> and I'd go back to what? To the main monastery, and Ajahn Chah would be talking to people, and he says, Here's Ajahn Salm's disciple. <laughs> rubbing it in, you know, and it was kind of. I'd have to watch this kind of uh, feeling. I don't want to be considered his disciple. Even though I'm living there, I don't want to, you know, I, just, I don't consider him my teacher. And then, uh, then the, then the uh, washing, washing the feet of the teacher, of the Ajahn, you see. So when the, in Thailand you, you, you go on the arms round barefoot, so you come back, your feet are all dirty. So they have these foot baths outside the building. And the custom is that the junior monks all go and kind of wash the feet of the, the senior monks, especially the, the head monk. As soon as they come back, you're kind of waiting around the foot bath, and then, they, then you scrub their feet and dry them. Well, even the Thai monks didn't like this monk. They wouldn't wash his feet. So Ajahn Som had to wash his own feet, you know, and he... And, uh, and I, and I thought, I'm not going to wash his feet because he'll think he deserves it. He thinks I'd, I'll admire him and that, that, that I regard him as my teacher. And I'm not going to let him think that. I mean, somebody like that. So then I started listening to this, uh, this kind of, to myself. And I, I kept thinking, is this, is this beautiful behavior? You know, is, is what I'm thinking... <laughs> Is this really uh, worthy, and uh, is it right? And suddenly I felt very ashamed, because uh, I was, you know, it was so conceited. I found out, I thought, what a conceited ass I am. I think that, that somebody has to, you know, I'm only going to wash the feet of, of monks that I, that I approve of, that I'm some kind of, judge of who, who's worthy and who isn't. Who's wor- who, are you worthy of, of me washing your feet? And uh, I, I'm only going to wash the feet of so unpleasant to be conceited. And it makes everything unpleasant for everyone else. Conceit is, is, uh, makes life very unpleasant for oneself and others. So then I began to just do what was right, what is a proper according to, say, monastic form. And, and uh, the form never said that you only wash the feet of the arahants. It said you... A monk is senior, and he this due to certain kind of so many years senior, and is this then you've performed these uh, 
proper function for them, whether they're monks you, you like, personally like or don't like or whatever isn't the issue. And bowing, the same thing, you're, you're not learning to bow, isn't, you're not bowing to just monks you like, you're bowing to sangha and, and it's not, you're getting outside the personal because sometimes you have to bow to, to monks you even know are, are not, uh, you know, have, have broken the rules and are quite shameless. In the, you know, you, you know sometimes some of these monks are, are not good monks. But that's not the issue, not me deciding to, to bow only to the good monks. But it's, it's the idea of the humble uh, joy of bowing to the Sangha and, and not whether the, how that monk is, whether, whether his character is good, bad, or he's a good or, or bad monk isn't the issue, isn't for me to decide. So that this, uh, this also is, uh, is a way of, of bringing into your conscious experience the, all the kind of conceited attitudes and ideas we have about uh, feeling that we, we're capable of passing judgments and, and uh, who's worthy and who is not. So Sangha, you see, the refuge in Sangha helps to get perspective on that, where we, we are not, uh, we're, we're not, say, it's not becoming personal and, and uh, we're not, uh, say, reacting on just likes and dislikes, but doing what is proper, what is suitable, what is beautiful, rather than just following our particular preferences of the, or mood of the moment. So in those two years that I was with that uh, teacher, I began to, that when, I, when I let go of the aversion and the conceit, then I became, you know, I became quite good friends, actually. To this day, whenever I go back to that monastery, he, he really is delighted to see me. And... <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, one, you know, it feels, one, I felt that when I left, I was leaving, not, I wasn't leave because of him, but uh, for other reasons, but they, but there was, it was, leaving was, there was nothing kind of, un, you know, uh, things left undone. I'd come to terms and learned how to operate in a situation in the right way that at first I found very difficult. Say with a teacher like Ajahn Chah, it's easy to do all those things. Somebody you love and respect, you look up to, you admire, who's, who's well-known, who's renowned, who's, who's uh, you know, you find scrubbing their back, washing their feet, cleaning their false teeth, all these things. <laughs> quite joyous things to be doing. 
for somebody you love. So that, that was no problem, but the, the difficulties lay when, when life wasn't always on that level. And then one had to perform one's duties, regardless of one's particular emotional preferences. And that's very good for this humbling. Isn't it? Because being a, a slave to a great, famous, wise sage can also be another kind of conceited position, can't it? Say, I'm, you know, I'm the, uh, I'm the servant of a great master and, and I take care of his personal things and, and uh, I'm, you know, and then you can, there's, a, there's also a sense of conceit there. One can be a conceited slave. When you're, when you're doing what is right, then sometimes it's, it's not because you're, you're, you're always having, serving the, the best, uh, but it's because you're, you're doing what is truly beautiful and humble and uh, kind. And whether anyone knows it or not, it really doesn't matter. Because you know it, isn't it? You, you're the one that really knows. You're the one that has to live with yourself. 